take 20 years of your life. He was like, they don't even have to be consecutive years. He was like, take the worst 20 years that you can put together and imagine your life. They never happened. What would your life look like if those were missing? Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. I'm Casey Wilson. I'm Cyrus's wife. I met Cyrus uh, in 1992. He was uh, already incarcerated at the Criminal Justice Center. He was awaiting trial at that time. Um, A friend of his that he was with called my cousin's phone by accident, and she accepted the call, and Cyrus and I ended up talking and just made a connection and continued to talk after that. Wow. Called your friend's phone by accident? Exactly. And then this was in 92, so there wasn't a caller ID, so you didn't know who it was. So she just accepted the call and did realize she didn't know who he was. And But they ended up talking for a few minutes, and then he was, you know, his he, Cyrus was there, and he said, my friend wants to talk to your cousin. And so I was like, okay. And we just got on the phone and immediately had a connection. That's just an amazing story. That was 27 years ago. What have the intervening 27 years been like? What's it been like to be married and have a family in that context? So uh, the jail process was was weird. We couldn't, I couldn't visit him at the time because I was a minor and I was 17. And I turned eight, when I turned 18, I ended up being, you know, going to see him pretty frequently. And of course it was behind glass. It just like the movies, (laughs) you know, there was glass, the little speaker thing. There wasn't a phone. It was just a little speaker thing. And, you know, we would just talk and write letters to each other. Uh, We talked about, you know, our future and, you know, what what we were going to do, what he was going to do when he came home. Um, It was just, it was a lot of just planning. And, you know, he, he was honest with me from the very first conversation. I asked him why he was in jail. He told me, you know, that he was awaiting trial, that he had been accused of murder, that he didn't kill anyone, that he was innocent. And at that time, being as young and naive as we were, we believed that the justice system would work out and he would come home. And obviously that was not the case. So we maintained our relationship as boyfriend and girlfriend throughout his one-day trial. One day. It lasted for one whole day, and I was there for that. And from that point on, I mean, we maintained our relationship for several years, writing, visiting, and then it became, I don't want to say a burden, but it was definitely hard. It seemed like, you know, there was no, at that time, we didn't know about an innocence project, you know, appeals had gone by the wayside. So, you know, we we were struggling and I was young and didn't understand, you know, what he needed, how to support him at that time. And so we remained friends, but we weren't in a relationship. And I ended up getting married and having kids. And then we reconnected several times in that, you know, we would always, you know, I would always reach out and check on him or he would, you know, reach out. My mom lived in the same house up until my youngest daughter was born. Her phone number never changed. So he would call my mom's house or he would, you know, send me a letter to my mom's house and, you know, just to see how I was doing. 
And about, so it's been a little over five years ago, we reconnected and, you know, we just decided at that point that we wanted to get married and this would be our life. It's been a roller coaster ride from that point. So, And basically from that time, the past five years, you've been looking forward to April 17th without knowing the date yet. but Yes, without knowing the date. I've we've been looking forward to this was something that, you know, actually I can remember the very first time I could go on the Internet and see a parole date. And it was a date I just couldn't even imagine in my brain because at that time, you know, they hadn't there. There was no good time had been added or things like that. And so it was a really far date in the future. I couldn't even imagine it. It seemed like, you know oh my gosh, we'll be in our 50s. And, you know, so for this day to happen, like I can remember when I first signed on and looked on the internet and it said April 17th, 2019. And I just, I was like, oh my gosh. Like I can remember my heart racing and just being super excited about that. My name is Raheem Buford. I am the Nashville Community Bail Fund Manager and I'm the founder and executive director of Unheard Voices Outreach. How did you first get to know Cyrus? I met Cyrus in 2012 uh, when he came to Riverbend Maximum Security Prison. We were both in Unit 6 together, and I saw him in the pod one day, and I just thought he was an interesting-looking person because he didn't seem to be mingling much, and I'm just the type of person who likes to get to know people, and I I think I introduced myself, and he introduced himself, and um, in a very short period of time, we became friends. Every morning, just about, we would sit at my office, which is a table uh, in the middle of the the pod. It was B-Pod, and we would talk about life. We would talk about the things that we wanted to do once we got out, and I remember us talking about If I got out before him, I would do everything within my power to help him in his campaign to be freed and vice versa. So um, my work is pretty much honoring um, that commitment that I made, but I see Cyrus as a friend, so it's my obligation, I feel, uh, to put myself up against all of this madness and say, hey, you know, here's a man that's innocent. I wasn't. I'm out, he's in, and it doesn't make any sense. Can you tell me your name and what your role is in the Cyrus Wilson case? Sure. My name is Dawn Diener. I am the founder of the Choosing Justice Initiative, and in that role, I am representing Cyrus Wilson at his parole hearing next week. Cyrus will be the first person that I've represented at a parole hearing. I've attended one other parole hearing, um, but Cyrus is going to be my first opportunity to represent an individual in front of the parole board. And what are you maybe better known for? I am better known for being the elected public defender for Nashville from 2008 through 2018. Are there other individuals in Tennessee with a similar story to Cyrus's, that they were convicted for murder, they maintained their innocence, and that they successfully were granted parole? There's only been one other person who has had to face the parole board and did not admit guilt, and that was Ndume Olatushani. He was convicted of a first-degree murder out of Memphis, Shelby County, 
Uh, his was actually a capital prosecution, and so he received a death sentence. And through years of persistence and, and fighting uh, to clear his name, he eventually was able to come out from under his death sentence and then eventually able to have his murder conviction set aside. While that was happening, he appeared before the parole board twice, and eventually the parole board granted him parole. Now, he did not get released on parole because of developments in his case that resulted in him taking what's called an Alford plea, meaning they offered him a plea that would, have, that would produce his release. Rather than take his chances and rather than having to deal with being on parole, as I understand it, he made a decision to accept that Alfred plea and move on with his life. That's the only individual I'm aware of in Tennessee who insisted upon his innocence of a first-degree murder and was still granted parole. And we have made an extra special effort, and hopefully in Dumay we'll be sitting with uh, Attorney Don Diener when it's time uh, to present the most crucial parts of why uh, Cyrus should be seen uh, in, as an exceptional individual. And hopefully in Dume we'll get an opportunity to at least say, I was once in the same situation that uh, Cyrus is in today. When you go in front of the parole board and you don't have anything to say about the crime, it puts the parole board in a situation to where they have to evaluate you for who you are in that space, in that moment. They really have to look at your institutional record. They have to uh, look at whether or not you have a family, community support. And even then, because of the policies that are already written and practiced, it's very, very, very rare for someone to make parole who has been in prison uh, for a very lengthy period of time. The best possible outcome could be immediate release, of course, and the second best is a continuation for a psychological evaluation. And so Cyrus is just in a situation to where it's really not something you can prepare for outside of just what he already has. He has a community, he has a family, he has ambition, he has intelligence, he has smarts, he has drive, he has a will. He wants to be a part of the community. He already has demonstrated that from on the inside, from participating in our programs, solved infinite possibilities, science of mind, even a few times in Project New Beginning. So he's well uh, capable of coming out of prison and um, getting acclimated. How does the support and the organizing effort for Cyrus compare to the effort uh, for Indume? I think with Cyrus, the element that I bring to it is different than what Ndume had. Ndume had supporters, but Ndume had a firm from New York. Ndume had a lot of people who were sympathetic towards persons who uh, were on death row. Cyrus is in a different situation because the strangest thing is that people are not looking at him in a way that I, I would think that they should. Because here's a man who has maintained his innocence. And there are people in our uh, state who are in prison today who will be leaving prison in less time who admitted to doing something. And that's just not Cyrus's case. So with my voice involved in the process to show how a person can parole a life sentence, can do everything 
that is necessary to demonstrate change, reform, remorse, it doesn't really, you know, you're always going to be seen until we deal with this felonism, you're going to be seen as less than everybody else because you, 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 you've been dis- disenfranchised. And so with Cyrus, he knows this. He's talked about this. And I guess for myself, having been someone who has admitted to some guilt for a crime where a person's life was lost, I had to fight extra hard just to get out of prison. I had to have three parole hearings. With Cyrus, we're trying to prevent that. That's why we're putting as many eyes as possible on this case. We have college students involved, the community, pastors, lawyers. I feel like Cyrus has the largest group of diverse people that that I've seen since I uh, have been connected to this uh, Tennessee Department of Corrections coming to say, I care about what happens. I was reading, of course, Stephen Hale's coverage of Cyrus's case. Um, He did a piece, I believe, maybe two years ago and then a great follow-up. That's the cover story currently. There were many more parole hearings than I sort of thought about. Is it one parole board that hears all of them or are these different parole boards across the state? So Tennessee has a single parole board, and there are members of the parole board. In cases like Cyrus, uh, where individuals have been convicted of serious offenses, including first-degree murder, a member of the parole board actually conducts the parole board hearing. In less serious cases, there are hearing officers who will often conduct the parole board hearing. Once the hearing is conducted, the parole board member or the hearing officer makes a recommendation for what they think the outcome of the hearing should be, and that recommendation is passed along to the other members of the parole board. Can you talk a bit about the the background of Cyrus's case? Uh, of course, his original trial was in 1994 for first-degree murder of Christopher Luckett in the Edgehill neighborhood in 1992 when uh, Mr. Wilson was only 18 years old. Can you talk a bit about the evidence that was presented at his original trial? Sure. Uh, The primary evidence that was presented against him was the testimony of two young juveniles uh, who claimed that they saw the shooting and that they saw Cyrus Wilson shoot Christopher Luckett. Uh, Those two uh, juveniles at the time said that they were eyewitnesses to it, um, and that was the primary evidence. There was also some testimony about the fact that Cyrus's car had been stolen a few months earlier by Mr. Luckett, and that Cyrus was upset about that and had said he was going to get him. Now, Cyrus himself testified at that trial, and he testified that he did not shoot or kill Mr. Luckett. He testified that he was at home at the time the shooting happened. He acknowledged that his car had been stolen by Mr. Luckett, but that was a few months before this, and he had gotten his car back. And he also um, acknowledged that he'd said he was going to get him. But just because he said he was going to get him doesn't mean he uh, killed him. The last piece of evidence that, that was really the focus of the state's case was some evidence of a gun. And a gun that they believed or that they thought was involved in the, in the crime it was a shotgun. And ballistics testing has, has definitively established at this point that that gun was not involved in the shooting of Mr. Luckett. So that, that trial was, of course, 25 years ago at this point. What's changed since that trial? 
So the biggest change has been the two juveniles who are now grown men have come forward at different times and said that they lied at Cyrus's trial and that they did not see him shoot and kill Christopher Luckett. That's a big change. Uh, and so the question is, well, if they've said that they've that they said that they lied, why hasn't Cyrus been released or why hasn't he gotten a new trial? And the answer of that is actually somewhat ironic. So there have been a couple of hearings in which these witnesses testified that they lied. And what the judge hearing that testimony concluded was that because he wasn't convinced they were telling the truth now, that Cyrus was not entitled to a new trial. So the irony in there is that the, the judge who presided over Cyrus's trial back in 1994 is now made a decision in 2017 that he doesn't believe the credibility of those witnesses today. Is this the same judge? Yes, it was the same trial judge. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of ironic that when Cyrus ended up in prison on the word of these two people who were kids at the time they testified, um, and now a trial judge has made a finding that essentially they're not credible today, and yet Cyrus can't get a new trial. What are the challenges for someone like Cyrus who is been in prison for the last 25 years, took the stand against the advice of his attorney at the time of his original trial to claim his innocence and has maintained his innocence the entire time. What are the challenges for someone like that in a context of a parole hearing? The biggest challenge that Cyrus will face at his parole hearing is his continued insistence upon his innocence. Once you're convicted of a crime, um, you know, really how people see you and how the law sees you changes. It flips and you are now presumed guilty. So one of the biggest factors that the parole board looks at when somebody comes before them seeking parole is whether or not they have acknowledged responsibility for the offense that they were convicted of, whether or not they express remorse, um, and if they've done anything to try to make amends for what they did. Well, as you might imagine, somebody who says, I didn't do anything, um, has, a, has an uphill battle with a parole board. So that's the biggest problem that he faces. But it's not the only problem. Um, the parole board today has guidelines around um, who should be granted parole, uh, who shouldn't be granted parole. And the biggest hurdle for an individual convicted of first-degree murder is that the parole board guidelines today recommend denial of parole for anybody convicted of first-degree murder at their initial hearing and at subsequent hearings unless there's some established proven exception that would that would like DNA um, perhaps DNA but really uh, the exceptions range from mitigating and aggravating circumstances but um, Really, innocence issues aren't one of those exceptional circumstances that are outlined. It's more about perhaps age at the time of the offense or whether or not there was substantial cooperation with law enforcement authorities, things of that nature. So innocence isn't actually one of the mitigating circumstances for or, or extenuating circumstances or exceptional circumstances that would um, really lead to a recommendation of parole in a situation where the guidelines say deny parole. That seems wild. It seems wild to me that the, that the guidelines for parole would instruct hearing officers and parole board members to 
out of out of the gate recommend denial unless the person seeking parole can establish some exceptional circumstances when the law says this person after serving a certain amount of time is eligible for parole why put the person through a parole board hearing why make them eligible if where they're starting from is a presumption that parole should be denied and what is cyrus's full sentence is it a life sentence his sentence is a life sentence, but of course he was sentenced under what we would what I refer to as the old life uh, statute, and the current life sentence is 51 calendar years, um, and so that became effective after the offense for which Cyrus was convicted, shortly after. So that's another interesting thing about the law is that somebody convicted of a murder that happened in 1992. If they get a life sentence, they are in the position of Cyrus. They become eligible for parole after serving approximately 25 years. You would not be eligible for parole until you had served at least 51 years under the current life sentence. What are the actual particulars of a parole hearing? What can people expect to see? How does that play out? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Well, what it feels like for an insider, at least from my perspective, and many, many, many other insiders— the state may say inmates, but we refuse to to use that dehumanizing language. However, nervous, anxiety, uncertainty, because you cannot know what this parole board would do because they are so arbitrary in the decisions that they make. That said, I'm sure he can feel a certain level of safety in the sense that he has a community, he has a family. And he knows that there are at least hundreds, if not even thousands of people who know who Cyrus Wilson is. And regardless of what happens in terms of the decision, he will always have people supporting him. But in terms of just that process with this this ritual, what can he really do? He can't go in and say, okay. I did this or I did that because it wouldn't be true because he's innocent. So they have to focus on what has happened in the 27 years that he's been in prison. And even that would be an injustice because he was placed into an environment under false pretenses. And he has maintained his innocence the whole time. And yet he will be evaluated under a standard that was meant for people who are considered guilty. Only one person has succeeded at what Cyrus is about uh, to uh, attempt. What happens to Cyrus Wilson if on April 17th, the parole board declines his request for parole? He remains in custody. And so the parole board, what will happen at that hearing, as I understand it, is that the, the, the parole board member conducting the hearing will make a recommendation and will announce that what that recommendation will be at the hearing. And that will be forwarded on to the rest of the parole board members. So a final decision won't be made that day. Um, if the recommendation is to deny parole, then the next question is for how long? So the next question for the parole board to answer was, will be, when will they reset the next hearing and the next opportunity for Cyrus to appear before the parole board and ask for parole again? What do you want people to know about Cyrus? Cyrus is an extremely compassionate and considerate person, just in general. And 
when I when we talk about our future and we talk about the things we want to do, his thought is, you know, he wants to come home and be a good husband, be a good father, be an uncle to his nephew. He wants to be with his family. You know, he just wants to be part of the community. We talk about, you know, building our dream home. My parents live in West Tennessee in Paris, and we talk about dreaming, building our dream home in Paris and living there because, you know, it's a, it's a smaller city. You know, we really like it. Well, I really like it, and I've told him, you know. And so those are just the things, you know, just we've talked about traveling. I don't know that he doesn't have the travel bag like I do. You know, he's he's more of a homebody. So he was like, I would love to just, you know, he wants to watch the movies we watched as teenagers with our kids. How often are you able to talk to Cyrus? So we talk on the phone usually daily unless there's just some reason why he can't get to a phone to call me. Uh, We visit every weekend. So I see him on Saturday and Sunday every weekend, depending on what our daughter's activities are for that weekend depends on how long I'm there but most Saturdays and Sundays I'm there from 8 to 3 30 visiting. Hi my name is Cassidy and I'm Cyrus Wilson's daughter. I guess what have the past years months and weeks now been like leading up to this date and now it's it's a week away. When I was in like fourth grade I met Cyrus Right before my mom and him decided to get married, my mom pulled me in her room because she always used to go on the weekends for a long period of time, just leave me and my sister and my nana at the house. And I was like, why is she leaving us so much? And she used to stay on the phone with a man. And I'm not used to my mother talking to men. So one day she pulled me in her room and she said, I've been talking to this man named Cyrus Wilson and he's incarcerated and at the time I was like 10 I didn't even know never been to a prison never like thought of going there and she was like I'm thinking of marrying him but before I do I would like to for you to meet him and you know get your thoughts on it so one day it was a Friday night I went there and I remember exactly like what happened. I was so nervous. I was like, oh my gosh, what if he doesn't like me? What if he's mean? Like, I was just thinking all these thoughts. And we sat in the corner of the visitation gallery and I got these jalapeno pretzels that me and him could share. And I told my mama, you can't have none because I'm sharing it with him. He told me that he's knew, he's known me my whole life. I didn't know he known me my whole life, like at all. And he said he's watched me grow. My mom's told him so much about me and stuff. And just me and Saj made a really good connection. Like, I felt like he was a really good man to my mom. I've seen my mom these past years the happiest she's ever been with a man. And that makes me so happy. And I also seen my older sister, which she has never had a male figure in her life at all. I've seen sides come into her life, and I've seen a whole nother side of my sister opening up to somebody because my sister never does that. And it just means a lot to me that he can make my mom and my sister happy. But over the past year, Sides has not only helped my family grow, but he's helped my myself as my, like, me personally grow because I used to be... <laughs> 
the wild child of the family. I used to get in trouble all the time and stuff and not listen to what people had to say. And, you know, I've grown so much from just talking to him. These past weeks when I first heard that he had a parole hearing, I was very excited, but when I think of a parole hearing, I'm just thinking like he could get put off for a year, five years, and or he can get immediate release. Now the days that are leading up to it, I'm very anxious. My anxiety has shot through the roof. I'm very emotional, very nervous, very anxious, and I just want everybody to know that Cyrus Wilson, he's a person, and even though he has been incarcerated for many decades, he's still a person, and when he comes home, he will be a great part to the community because He's not alone. He has a whole big support group that can help him through problems that not everybody in prison when they get out has. Have you sort of walked through what April 17th is going to be like, and are you going to be able to to speak? How does it work? So um, I will be speaking. Um, I'm going to represent his family, represent all of us, um, and speak to the board about that. I'm excited and I'm nervous and I'm anxious just because I feel like this is probably the presentation of a lifetime for me. Not only does his future ride on what happens there, but our future rides on that. I know there's going to be a lot of people, so I know it's going to be somewhat chaotic just by how how the process is to even get into the parole hearing. I feel like I probably will be, I don't know, probably beside myself for the majority of that day. So... You talked about the really long process of building that community support for Cyrus to the point where there are newspaper articles and you do have Don Diener involved. And how did it go from being just sort of the core of you and Raheem and family? How did it go from that to the level of support that you have now? Was there a particular turning point at which people started to pay attention to Cyrus's plight and his case? I can't pinpoint a particular turning point. I think more it was people like Raheem who mentioned his name every opportunity that he had. Every opportunity that he was in front of a group of people, he mentioned Cyrus's name. And every opportunity that I've had, that I've been in in a group or I've been in an arena where I could speak, I've mentioned his name and mentioned his case and told his story. Eventually, the right people said, oh, we need to pay attention to this. This is something that that is affecting our community and we need to pay attention. And I think that was just how it happens. And I think that's the way a lot of movements happen. Casey should give herself some credit for coming out of her comfort zone and doing uh, what a lot of partners, wives, loved ones do not do uh, for people who are in prison. That takes a lot to learn how to talk to the public and how to put yourself out there and be vulnerable in a way that you're going to be judged because some people automatically think, oh, you must be desperate. You mess with this person in prison. You can't. I mean, it's so many judgments that that attend connecting intimately with with someone on the inside. But I think it's important for, for us to really look deeply into this moment that Cyrus is a bridge. When he began to come to the SALT classes, he was quiet. He had not really, you know, engaged 
the penitentiary world of academia uh, until he came to River Bend. And then when you saw a man who, uh, I, I remember the first time I saw Cyrus, uh, and the only time I saw Cyrus, be very emotional. Because I hardly see, hardly see that. He's a stoic type of, type of person sometimes. But he was very emotional uh, when he just, I guess, had a moment where he felt so comfortable with his family and the Schools for Alternative Learning and Transformation that he, he, he shed a few tears about his own situation and how frustrating it was to be in his situation, to have the type of information where uh, a DA had information that says, I know they're lying, but I still think it's a good case. And for him to be harmed, be victimized, to be violated with with, with the institutional violence of abuse of, of, of authority and power and to... to <sighs> All of the last of your teens, all of your 20s, all of your 30s, and now he's in a quarter of his 40s. He's been in a cage. And I think that my role is to help give voice to that in in a way that people understand. We need to say it for what it is. Here's a black man who is a victim of a racist system, who was fingered because of things that didn't have anything to do with the crime, but because of how he may have lived his life. And that's the stereotypical um, story of what happens to a lot of black people who are males in America, who are young, who are seen as threatening. And there has to be some accountability because if there isn't any, this will uh, continue to happen. And I'm glad Cyrus didn't sell out. And, and negotiate a plea because then he really wouldn't have a whole lot to say. The people who are supporting him today wouldn't even have come into being as it is. Where you have college students, you have people in the community from churches, from civic organizations, you have people from out of town, all kinds of folks that know who Cyrus Wilson is because he's he's taking this stand. So we should not forget that the bridge that is is being built because of Cyrus is something that is part of the larger picture of America because we're asking questions about what kind of America do we want to live in. And if we can't get justice right, we'll never get past the divides that cause people of different ethnicities to, to separate, to come together because we don't want to deal with the truth. Is there anything else that you want people to know about about Cyrus, about this, about this case, about the process? I just want them to know that Cyrus is a person. He's a human being. He is someone who is deserving to be at home. He's deserving to be with his family. He has spent 27 years of his life fighting to get people to understand his his plight to understand his case, to understand his innocence. He, you know, he has worked, we've worked very hard. You know, I I know a few weeks ago, some of the insiders commented to him that, you know, oh, wow, you've got, you know, all this, you know, all these people. And I said, you know, they do understand this wasn't an overnight process. 27 years of his life has been stolen and it is time for him to be a part of this community and, you know, to prove that he was he he's always, you know, maintained his innocence and to prove that he was right, that 
he is innocent and he should be home. I think it's important for people power to be seen because this is not just a ritual for us. This is a man's life weighing in the balance. So showing up at that parole hearing, but if they can't be at that parole hearing, hashtagging free Cyrus Wilson, if they can't be at the parole hearing, finding someone who has some type of influence to make a phone call to somebody else who might have some influence, but somehow we have to get to the parole board members and make this case that Cyrus Wilson is an exceptional individual and he deserves an opportunity to be released and not penalized because he can't and and rightly so admit to guilt that is not there. So being present and um, lifting up his name. And I would even say that we need to have a, uh, a Cyrus Wilson Freedom Fund because when you leave prison without any money, not to say that his family isn't going to help, but he's a man and he deserves to have something coming out of prison because uh, we were working for 17 cents an hour, 34 cents an hour, 50 cents an hour. And we put money on the phone account. I know he does that. And maybe it he needs financial support, just like other people who have not been in prison, who have gone through some situations. We need a Cyrus Wilson uh, Freedom Fund. I think that'll help because some people would rather just give money. And we appreciate that as well, because at the end of the day, one day Cyrus is going to leave prison and it's better to leave with some type of support financially because he has the rest of the support than it is not to leave with some. And and I, I think it's important that I want to lift up No Exceptions Prison Collective with Jeannie Alexander because I think she's been a great mentor uh, for Casey because she has stood in the gap and always been present from the heart worst times up until, you know, even from when I was in prison when she was a chaplain and we started this Underground Railroad. Uh, That's what it was. And um, we vowed to fight this system. And we are fighting this system because the people who are involved in this case with Cyrus, it doesn't end with this. Because we have to speak to the people who can change policies, not just for the parole board and this and the harm and the violence that comes from that, but the over um, prosecution of cases like Cyrus's, the abuse of discretion coming from um, district attorneys who have way too much power to decide the fate of another human being. And even when you look in the legislature and these laws that dictate how people are just microwaved through the system, that's why Cyrus is this moment for Nashville, Tennessee, to rise up and say, we can define justice in a different way. So this is so much more than just what it looks like right now. And I just hope that when Cyrus comes out, that we amplify his voice, that he speaks wherever he can go and talk about the cruelty of what happened, but also talk about the humanity of his family and what gave him the strength and the spirit to continue to say, you know what, life is still worth living even though I'm still in a cage. Even dark as it is with Cyrus, the light 
is even brighter when we look at the the bigger picture of what this means because he will get justice one way or another. As long as I have breath and my voice works, I'm, I'm going to lift up, up Cyrus's name. Raheem is definitely correct. Uh, Jeannie has been, Jeannie Alexander has been a mountain of support uh, for our family, for me personally. The very first time Jeannie and I met was at a Panera Bread, and I just didn't know what to do. I was struggling with my marriage. I was struggling with prison, and she did not know me, had never met me, had never spoke to me. And she agreed to meet with me that day, and she sat with me and talked, and, you know, she made made me comfortable and made me feel like, you know, there is a world of people who who are willing to support you, who are willing to help you, you just, you know, have to reach out. And, you know, Raheem spoke about family members, and that is one thing that I have tried to do in these last five years is Cyrus at one point was moved to Trialsdale Turner Correctional Center for a year in, 20, in 2016. So he spent all of 2017 there, and which is a privately run prison. And I made it a point to organize the families there and to get to help them understand you can speak out for your loved one. You can advocate for your loved one. You know, it does it doesn't make you, you know, don't be shamed. You know, there's a lot of shame around prison. There's a lot of shame around having a loved one incarcerated. And there shouldn't be because there are over two million people in this country who are caged at this moment. And. That means there are two million families that a loved one is physically missing from their family. Their family should never feel shame about that. You should never feel shame about loving someone. And I just want people to understand that, you know, there are people in these cages that are good people. I mean, I tell people all the time, you know, I've met some of the best people in prison. And, you know, I consider several of these people family and you know, not, you know, of course, Cyrus is my family, but I consider several people my family. And I am with Raheem as long as there is breath in my body, as long as I have a voice, as long as I am able to speak out, I will continue to speak out for Cyrus and for everyone else because it's important and it's needed. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for coming on the podcast. This has been really informative and a powerful experience for me. And I plan to be there on april 17th i hope other people will will join y'all as well so thanks again thank Thank you. you thank you views that i express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the metropolitan government of nashville and davidson county